Welcome everyone, it is the Bloods of Old podcast, Joel Brown your host here and I hope you had a sensational Christmas and New Year's period, still very much under the COVID-19 cloud unfortunately, uh, the likes of Victoria, Queensland, uh, borders are closed and this COVID-19 business, uh, it is not going away anytime soon that's for sure. Hopefully doesn't affect the AFL season too much. I know a lot of footy fans, and particularly Sydney Swans fans, are absolutely biting at the bit for uh, some football action to happen. I mean, we've got cricket, um, you know, talking of COVID and uh, controversies. I know there's a lot happening at the SEG with the pink test as we record this. I mean, that's a podcast in itself, not even going to bother touching that. But if you would like to support the show, hit us up on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Bloods of Old. And of course, uh, we're on uh, most popular uh, podcast uh, streaming services, that being Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. And speaking of iTunes, make sure to give us a five-star review. Give us a review, write something very snazzy and smart up, and I will do my best to get to them and read them out on the show. So that is at Bloods of Old on all the socials and uh, all your popular podcast streaming services. And I tell you what, absolutely looking forward to uh, delivering this uh, episode. Episode 5, uh, and we're going to be speaking with Rodney Ede, former coach of the Sydney Swans. 152 games, I believe, between 1996 to 2002. And uh, really uh, talking about uh, those two years, 96 where it started and 2002 when it ended. Obviously, the Swans getting into the 1996 Grand Final, Rodney Eads' first year as coach. And 2002, I think I've said numerous times on this podcast, a quote-unquote turbulent year. And I guess it really depends on who you speak to, uh, if that is actually how it is. But I asked Rodney about it. Uh, I'm actually really looking forward to, like I've already said, uh, dropping this and giving it to you because I kind of feel within the... Uh, I feel sometimes Rodney Eade with uh, Sydney supporters and sometimes football supporters gets a little bit of a bad rap and I uh, don't think it's really warranted, whether that be uh, with uh, the spray uh, type of uh, stuff, I guess that the Will Minson uh, audio comes to mind, or just, I guess, sometimes coaches aren't remembered in the absolute best light when they kind of move on halfway through a season and I think it's a little bit unwarranted I guess on the the swan side of things because uh, when doing research for this I couldn't find too many interviews with Rodney Ede where he kind of would go in deep and talk about his time at the Swans obviously a lot of positive stuff on his playing days being a four premiership uh, or Hawthorne player uh, the time at the Bulldogs and uh, the time at the end uh, with the Gold Coast and and not so much, not so much on the swan. So it was really great to sort of talk to him about that period and kind of, I guess, with this podcast, with this interview, sort of give, uh, shed some new light because Rodney Eade's contribution, I mean, not only to football, but to the Sydney Swans cannot be denied. So uh, without further ado, here we go. This is the Rodney Rocket Eade interview recorded a week out from Christmas. Enjoy. <laughs> 259 AFL games, four premierships with the mighty Hawthorne Hawks, on the wing for the Tasmanian team of the century, 377 games as an AFL coach, 152 of those with the Sydney Swans. It's a very big welcome and hello to Rodney Rocket Eade. Hi, Joel. How are you, mate? All right? Very, very well. I mean, uh, as we record this, uh, some clusters of more coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, <laughs> but I guess... Uh, a few days out from Christmas, about a week and a little bit, 2020 finally coming to a close. 
Uh, any New Year resolutions for 2021? No, I don't, uh, I don't normally do resolutions, to be honest. But uh, I think what it's shown this last year is, uh, I think, appreciate what you've got. Uh, not so much live life to the fullest, but enjoy it. Uh, smell the roses a bit and enjoy life as best you can, rather than look at the negatives, look at the downsides. So that's what I'll be trying to do in 2021. And what's Rodney E up to these days? Uh, are we still helping with uh, Baldwin and uh, Scott's College? Yes, uh, so Coach Ball in the, in the Eastern Football League, uh, Director of Coaching at Scotch College. I uh, do some work for a not-for-profit organisation, the government, for for fathering, for fathers. Uh, and we go through schools uh, doing that, called the Fathering Project. Also just started a coffee pod business with my stepson, who's back from Jakarta. So, so they're 100% compostable. So it's about waste, uh, I suppose, sustainability, um, the environment, so being 100% compostable, so putting some coffee pods into that. In Melbourne, coffee, that's uh, it's a big game down there. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Like, it's a very competitive market, so the, that's the point of difference is just the, you know, apart from being good coffee, is just the sustainability. You know, the most of the pods you have, you have to go to throw in a special waste, you know, you have to throw it in your, in, your, in your normal waste, but you can do this or you throw it in the garden and, and it decomposes in 12 weeks, so it's good for the environment. It's good coffee. So um, certainly, as I said, it's just started. So hopefully you can get get off the ground and do well. And you touch on the fathering project. Uh, what's involved with that? It's only a small small not-for-profit organisation that started in Perth. It's now just coming to the, been the last 18 months on the East Coast. It's about that they're targeting primary schools mainly at this stage, but it can be any organisation. But it's about getting fathers just to understand the positive impact they can have on children just by being engaged and being around. And uh, it's heavily researched and the research shows the positive outcomes for children as far as their development outcomes, um, schooling, um, homework, uh, emotional intelligence, uh, I suppose decision-making in life as well. And and it's not about being a judgmental on dads, it's just saying being the best dad you can be or best father figure. So it's more father figures. We know there's different makeups of families. And just the positive impact, because a lot of a lot of dads or father figures say they're too busy, they work work hard, work twelve hours a day, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But mm. I think we can always find a little bit of time to have have some have some time with our kids. And uh, you have two kids of your own, correct? Uh, no, I've got more. Um, <laughs> I'm married a, married a second time, so I've got six between us. So I've got two boys from a previous, and my wife and I have got a girl who's now twenty three. So technically, I've three, but I say six because because uh, three from the previous as well. So plenty of experience uh, with uh, what it takes to be a father. Then good and bad, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's no uh, no. There's plenty of right ways, but there's obviously some wrong ways. But you learn along the way. You make make some mistakes. And being involved in footy, you, know, you can talk from pos- uh, from experience about uh, not having enough time uh, at times. You know, you, you know, you're away with football and. Uh, uh, your mind's in another place a lot with the with the you know thinking about footy and the pressure and etc. So uh, fortunately, I had a good wife or I've got a good wife who was able to put me on the on the right path, be able to spend some time with with kids and and obviously having a separated family as well. So there's time I had to put in for the boys. So yeah, it's not perfect, but uh, you know you can speak from experience about your own stories and your own experiences. Absolutely. I mean, you've coached uh, footy at many different levels, whether that be from local footy, reserves, and obviously three clubs at the highest level. 
Sydney, New South Wales, Western Bulldogs, obviously in the heartland of uh, the AFL, Gold Coast in Queensland, two out of those three, quote-unquote, uh, not in the Melbourne fishbowl. Uh, did that take any pressure off being a senior coach? And I guess, how did you find the culture of predominantly uh, NRL states in New South Wales and Queensland? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, no, not really. It doesn't. Maybe the Gold Coast would agree it all comes to expectations and a lot is your own expectations. And we've seen a lot of coaches over the years with stress and pressures and how they how things have manifested itself post post coaching. And no one really understands it. I think Sydney just had that in isolation. I remember losing the two first games that I coached and I was absolutely stressed. You know, well, you know, your doubts go into your mind and first game was by 80 points in Adelaide, lost and then we lost to Fremantle. At that stage, nobody lost to Fremantle. <laughs> and that was at home. And um, I remember saying to my wife, oh, gee, I don't know, I'm up to this. And so so there was a lot of pressure too from their own supporters. Now that, so, and there was things in the media. Sometimes in Melbourne it can, if you are the focus of it, yeah, it's a lot of pressure, but we, with 10 teams it can be spread across. So it's got different types of pressure. So I didn't feel in Sydney that it was any less pressure. So, but as you said, our NRL heartland, I think the pressure in Sydney at that stage, as much as anything, was the NRL probably saw AFL as a bit of a threat. So I was trying to push us out um, onto the back blocks a bit. So there was no easy path. And I think the club have done a terrific job. Um, obviously, early days led by Richard Collis and uh, the board and, the way they went about it and um, and to where they are at the moment, I think they're obviously part of the Sydney landscape and uh, you know, heart, of the, heart of the city and have uh, been in finals most years since 1996, so they've done a terrific job. Was it that first year in 96 where most of the hair did come out? <laughs> I was starting to weigh before that. Uh, 96 was a, was, a, was a terrific year, as you imagine. The, the first two games, as I mentioned, were, were, were diabolical. We ended up winning 16 and a half out of 22. So we won 16 and a half out of the next 20. So it was a really good run um, and making the grand final. Unfortunately, we're, we went in a bit wounded and, and it caught up with us a bit. But uh, yeah, it was a terrific year. And I think the, the, what it does, and it's like any any team in any co- in the competition, people say, oh, the team that finished last or second last, there's not much pressure or they doubt. There is always pressure. And if you've made a big jump like Brisbane have done, then that brings its own pressure because the expectations go up. Like St Kilda will be interesting next year what they do because the, the, the pressure now will be on them to exceed where they were. They, they can't afford to slip back because then the knives will be out. So what 96 did was increase that pressure. And I know in 97 I didn't coach that well because I was putting pressure on the players, putting pressure on myself that we had to go one step further and, um, and we slipped back. And in 98 we actually played very well again. So... I think it was you know, learning on the job, um, but again, that word pressure and how, how it changes your behaviour and changes your mindset. What a touch on 96, particularly a little bit later on, and particularly one particular kick. But before we sort of touch on your playing career in AFL, it was almost Rodney Ede the cricketer. How close were we to seeing Rodney Ede play for Australia and perhaps wearing a baggy green? Oh, no, I don't think I would have gone that far. No, I wasn't. Uh, I, I, looking back, uh, in a very uh, realistic mind, I would, I, I would have thought that I probably would have played Sheffield Shield for Tassie. Played three 
Tassie under 19 or for Tasmania under 19 carnivals, um, the cricket that they were at that stage. And um, I sort of made the, the choice. Uh, my last year was when I was 17 playing senior footy in Hobart and I'd been playing district cricket since I was 14. Um, I'd planned to go to England and like all players do. And then I had a good year for Glenorchy uh, playing in the, and we won the statewide comp. And then Hawthorne signed me and recruited me to go to Melbourne the next year, the next few months. So I made the choice then that uh, that I took footy. So um, that was the choice really. When I went to Melbourne, I played three quarters of a season with Richmond, started in there. Uh, in the second day, Jim Higgs and Graham Yallop and players like that. At Richmond, but I never, and then the practice matches started, so that was the choice for me. So, no, I, I played with a, a lot of guys that I played with, played some shield cricket. So I think I would have, might have get some a shield game or two, but I don't think I would have gone much further than that. Well, I'll tell you what, you didn't do half bad with the footy. Uh, four premierships as a hawk, coached by the likes of David Parkin, Alan Jeans, uh, playing with Lee Matthews, Peter Knight, Dipper, Dermot Brereton, just to name a few names there. I mean, players have played 300 games plus and never won a flag. You were lucky to win the four. Do you ever sort of just look back and think how lucky you were to, I guess, one, be playing in such a great era of football and for a great team? Uh, which was the legendary Hawthorne side. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Now, it's a sliding doors, isn't it? Um, that I could have easily not uh, not ended up at, at Hawthorne. I was fortunate in, you know, you look at different moments, but playing for Glenorchy, which was my local team, and Peter Hudson coached. He, he wasn't captain, he didn't start the season, but he, he coached the team. And I think Peter had a bit to do to recommend me to Hawthorne. I know a couple of other teams came and watched me play at one stage. I found out later and I didn't play very well. So no other team spoke to me. So I was happy to sign with Hawthorne. So I could have easily not have gone to Hawthorne, I suppose. And I didn't think I'd last long, last a couple of years. And it you know, turned out that I went to a terrific football club in a part of an era that was really successful. Um, and they were able to keep that that success going um, after that as well. But as you mentioned, played with some great players and had some great coaches. John Kennedy was my first coach, uh, the great John, um, for one year, then David and then Alan. Um, so terrific mentors, terrific coaches. And as you said, great players, you know, Lee and Knightsey and Michael Tuck and um, Dunstall and Dipper. Hutto came back and played as well in, 90, in 77. So, yeah, I was very, very fortunate and uh, very... Uh, and I, I must admit, I do feel lucky to have played in four in four flags where, as you said, some some players who have um, had great careers and haven't played in any. So, yeah, so blessed, really. Because I think of, you know, as a Sydney Swan supporter, like the, the Paul Kellys, Tony Lockett's, Darren Creswell's, who were great players for the club and weren't able to uh, get that premiership medallion. Yeah, that's right. Now, you look at those guys, you know, look at Tony... And you're going to talk about that kick later, I, I imagine, but be able to get us in the grand final. And then, you know, great pride of performance he had in himself, Tony. And you know, he was a very quiet, not quiet as such, but reclusive type of guy. But he kicked six in that grand final with not being fully fit. And then, you have know, look at Paul Kelly, was just a, a great player and a New South Welshman as well. Just humble, humble beginnings as a footballer. Really, I think when he first went to the Swans when they had no money and they were struggling, really battling that one of the senior players told him to go home and, you know, he's never going to make it. And at that stage, I know if that was me, I probably would have gone home. But he, he stuck it out and I think it showed his 
toughness, mental toughness and his physical toughness as well. The winner Brownlow and captain of the club and probably one of the all-time greats of the club to be able to do it and an in, in inspirational player. Cresler as well, you know, he's a terrific player. Uh, came with a pre, I think, mid-season draft one year and went through the tough times, but was a f- fantastic player. So there's a lot of players like that, and all clubs would have them. But uh, yeah, it was a, it was a shame we couldn't uh, we couldn't go that one step in '96. Uh, more for the supporters and the and the and the players of the time. Um, yeah, we we're probably unfortunate. We had such a tough game in the preliminary final, and we took two players in with broken ribs, and we we had a few few sore bodies but anyway no they were very courageous and uh, they're terrific to coach are you surprised that Darren Creswell he has his own landscaping company right now are you surprised that uh, he can still walk <laughs> uh, yeah he's done very well in business he um, yeah I keep in touch with Creswell so um, I uh, hear from him a bit but he's done very well in his coaching too in the country footy and and where he's been so he's got a good footy brain yeah he was a tough player but he, he it's interesting <sighs> Gone to a different place, having been at Hawthorne as a player, then when I was at North Melbourne as an assistant coach, but going to Sydney and then even to the Bulldogs, showing the professionalism of some of the players, it was was amazing to me. And and Creswell was one along with Curl. They you know, and it would think to his detriment at times, Creswell would go for an 8K run on a Monday after a game. Like he just really punish himself, really work, really work hard. And I think he he deserved every success he got because he really did work extremely hard to, to get the most out of himself. And uh, I think it's a real credit. But I think that's probably part of the reason he, he's probably worked extremely hard and been professional, got himself strong, that he was able to cope able to cope with his body and be able to do what he's about to do now. So hopefully he doesn't catch up with him at some stage. You've said, uh, I think uh, it was with uh, Brad Sewell, uh, Paul Kelly in particular, that uh, that's one play that you wish you could have played alongside. How does Paul Kelly compare to your great Hawthorne teammates? Uh, well, Paul certainly been in the, in the team. There's no doubt about that. He, well, he's a midfielder. So the, the mids in my time... Um, obviously, Lee was a midfielder, and Lee's the best player I've seen. Um, different player to kill, uh, both tough. But Paul would be the next midfielder. He, he'd be, yeah, he'd be, he'd be, he'd be way up there. He'd be. Paul's in my top half dozen players. Um, just what he could do, his speed and his ability to jump um, and take the ball and fearless. And do everything at, at speed. Uh, it's just so tough. And uh, some of us, two of them, are vivid memories of a goal at, at the SCG against North Melbourne. Where he had blokes hanging off him, and he, I think it was Adam Simpson. The end was dragging him down. He kicked a goal, but another one in in at the Wacker. Um, he's taking the ball at half back and taking players on and bounced handball over the top. Got it back. Got tackled, shrugged it, got again, and gave it up top to Mikko Lockham and kicked a goal. And he was absolutely spent. And the Wacker members just stood and clapped him. It was just a, an absolutely inspirational bit of play. And that was the thing he could do. And he was very humble about it. He um, he trained hard and he, you know, he worked really hard. And he was a, you know, a fantastic... I think he, he's a great story to young players that he didn't come through the normal channels. He wasn't in the academies. He was a skinny kid from Wagga who couldn't kick. As I said before, one of the senior players at Sydney told him to go back home. He's not going to make it. He grew a little bit. He got stronger. He taught himself to kick. Got better at things. And I think I think Barry Mitchell helped him a lot. But he ended up winning a brown line, being a great player. And just shows you. And I've had some players at the Bulldogs like Daniel Cross and Matthew Boyd and Dale Morris. 
who've been bypassed at certain stages uh, underage and struggle to, to get games and all that sort of thing and end up being fantastic footballers just through work rate, just through want. And it's just a lesson. I think some of the younger people, they get their first hurdle, don't get picked, and it's, like, oh, it's too hard now and drop away. And it's just, just through resilience. And you can make it. You can really can if you really want to. And I think Paul's the epitome of that. He, you know, he's the gold star child about that about that sort of action. I think he played rugby league or till he was about 15 or 16 and then converted over to AFL. So I think, yeah, you're right there. Uh, it's a story that uh, I guess, um, I guess at least in New South Wales, we can kind of draw on as a good sort of uh, poster boy for uh, AFL. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I think it's to, to every everyone, every all young people, you know, his story's amazing. I've got about five or six different stories about how mentally tough he is and overcome adversity and, and be able to stick at it and, and probably off the charts a bit, people go, oh, I can't do that. But it just shows... To everybody in life, let alone younger people, that you know, you got to stick at it. You got to persevere and just don't don't take no for an answer. You know, if there's something put in your way, you, you know, there's a way around it or over it or under it. And I think at times we tend to give up a bit too easily. Is it a fair statement saying the current crop of football players are far more skilled than, say, players from your generation, but your generation and say like the era of footy in the eighties and the nineties, the players played harder? Played harder off the field. Oh, on the- <laughs> no, I was only joking. <laughs> that too, um, too. Um, I think the game's got more skillful, yes. Whether the style of play is great to view at the moment, and it's a different debate. I think maybe it's uh, too much coach-driven, to be honest, and I think, because the bottom line, we are in the entertainment industry. We think we're sport, but we are in the entertainment industry, and we're fighting with a lot of different avenues for certainly eyes and people to go to games, um, seats on, you know, bums on seats, but also the corporate dollar. So we need to make the game, you know, and the game was exciting in the 80s and the 90s for most of it. So, but I think in general, overall, more players are more, in a team of 22, there's more players with more skill than what there was in my time. Now I played premiership for some blokes who, who really struggled to kick the ball. But that's not the be-all and end-all either. And as you said, uh, it's interesting. I tend to disagree too about the toughness. I heard Lee Matthew say once that the, the players today are tougher. And I think they are because they go the more players go the ball with speed than they did in the past. In the past, it was tougher in many ways. You'd cop a whack and you'd get belted and... You stomped on and there wasn't as many umpires and the videos weren't there as much. And so it was tougher in that way. Certainly players in my time didn't have the resources they've got today of the coaching and uh, video analysis and uh, stats and time for development like full-time coaches. So players are getting developed quicker. Is the game better today? That's, that's, that's debatable as well. But I think their skill level is great they're probably athletic and we're getting more scientific so their things are able to do athletically are probably greater because they're trained that way not saying the players weren't as athletic then the toughness is an interesting one yeah it depends on your definition of toughness I think some people say they like the old hits is that generally tough when you hit from behind I'm not too sure but they'll raise an elbow or smash someone in the face when they're not expecting it um but they certainly are tough. They do now. They you know, I think the collisions are probably harder today. 
I was trying to set you up because uh, apparently you're deaf in one ear from getting a whack to the head, correct? <laughs> yes, I. Yeah, from Hobart. Yes, I am. <laughs> you, you've done your research. Well done. Speaking um, of Hobart, uh, you're uh, on the wing uh, for the Tasmanian team of the century. Uh, is Tassie pretty hard done by not to have an AFL team given the amount of talent that has come out of Tassie and it's produced? Oh, there's no doubt. No doubt. And I think it's been left left in the back or a bit and that before COVID came, it looked like they were looking at maybe 2025 and now... It's been put on the back burner and seems to be forgotten a bit. There's been no, no hear about the Tasmanian premiers mentioned something and someone else has mentioned something in the press and be no answer from the AFL. So I think that the AFL tend to forget about it, but because it's a danger, and I think the Tasmanian premier is right that kids will go to other sports, and will get lost, and for such a small population to be produced the amount of a players, but B quality players over a period of time. And some of the legends again, you know, Baldock, Stewart, Hudson, Royce Hart, are the four that stand out amongst the, the rest of them. And then Matthew Richardson, Alistair Lynch. Um, so there's Creza, you know, there's some great players who come from Tasmania. So it'll be a shame that it wilts on the vine. And if government don't go ahead with North Melbourne and Hawthorne anymore, then there's no AFL, then it, it, it'll, it could be lost to to AFL footy and I think that'd be a real shame a real bad legacy for the for the present AFL AFL um, uh, hierarchy that they'll be on their watch and uh, I think we've got to I think we've got to invest properly in not so much as money but I think time and uh, some right coaching and the pathways so that Tassie Tassie lads know that there is a pathway too because they've done a terrific job with the Swans Academy GWS have got an academy that those developing states, as they were, now they're overtaking, overtaking, overtaking Tassie. And I don't think it's a competition, but I think we can do the, the same type of thing. We'll be able to develop some players out of there. You've been quoted as saying that the move to the Brisbane Bears was the worst football decision you ever made, but the best career move. Sliding doors here. Rodney E doesn't go to Brisbane. What do you think you would have been doing post-footy career? Yeah, it's a good question. And it is, it is the ultimate sliding doors. I was working for... When I came from Tassie, I did my year 12, which was called HSC in those days, BCE nowadays. And then I got a job with Dunlop Tyres, which became Dunlop Olympic. Um, Hawthorne were very heavily entrenched with Dunlop. Um, got a job in the, what was then the computer centre. So in computer, so I worked for them for 11 years, 12 years. So I was working as a computer operator, as I were in those days, and then um, in managerial role. So I reckon I probably would have stayed there for quite a while and then developed computers and whatever. That's, I'm just imagining. So I've worked there for so long. Then I went to the Brisbane Bears, which on the back of, I got dropped for the 85 grand final. Then got back in 86 and played okay. Then 87 got dropped a couple of times. And the ego kicks in and said, well, I should have been picked. All that sort of thing. I didn't say that out loud, just to myself. And the Brisbane Bears, because not Peter Knights was coaching, approached me, yes, I would like to go. Um, so I went to uh, the Bears. Um, and it was a tough, it was tough for everyone. It was tough for Peter. Christopher Scase owned the club and wasn't run very well and the AFL VFL in those days really didn't help that much with the setup. It was really poorly supported. 
So that really was a struggle. And I think, oh, then Hawthorne won the premiership, won the premierships the next two years. Whether I was going to be picked, questionable, but it gives you an opportunity or a chance. You never know what happens. Uh, and then, as luck would have it, change of ownership. Uh, there's a bit of a coup. Paul Felton was coach and he got moved on. Political wrangling. And then Norm Dare became coach, who was an assistant coach, in the February. So that was, that's how late it was. And there's no new players to the club, but it was a really tough time. And there was reserves in the AFL competition. There's AFL reserves. So Brisbane and Sydney had teams in the AFL reserves. So flying player with it. Anyway, um, Norm wanted a senior player to coach the reserves. So it was myself or Mark Williams, Choco Williams. And he's going to share that. I put up every negative why I didn't want to do it. I never wanted to be coach. Remember when David Parkin, who was ahead of his time with, in retrospect, reviews and written paperwork and uh, all this, this, I threw all of those out. Um, some teammates at Hawthorne said, oh, you should coach. And, no, didn't want to. And so, which was to my regret to this day, um, as, as far as throwing that out. And then um, the board, I'll use that as a loose term, as the, at the Bears only wanted one player to coach. So... Choco decided he'd just play. So I um, became coach of reserves, but at the same time playing senior football. So it's a bit like country, where I'd coach the reserves to a three-quarter time, then go down to the, in an elite team and co- and get changed and prepare for playing in the ones. So it's archaic. It's uh, no chance of existing today. As luck would have it again, I hurt my knee in round four, did a medial ligament. So just coached, really enjoyed it. Then came back when I was right to play and played technically as captain coach in the seconds. And it was fantastic. I really enjoyed that aspect, you know, being able to direct some kids on the ground and make some moves. And then I got the last, Norm gave me the last game of the year as that was I retired. And then coached the reserves again the next year. We won the VFL Premiership out at Waverley. And then um, then went to North Melbourne as an assistant coach for four years. So, yeah, it's a long story, but sliding door moment again and um, worked out well. Did you cross paths with, uh, was Kappa uh, at the Brisbane Bears when you were coaching? Uh, no, I played with Warwick. Played with Warwick, yeah. Played with Warwick. So I played till 1990. I think Warwick came. Yeah. I went to the Bears in 88. 88? Yeah, they started 87. I went in 88. Warwick came in 89. So 89 and 90, played with Warwick when he was there. Um and I coached, sorry, and then I coached 1990 in the, in the senior. I'd, he don't, he might have played seconds. I might have coached. I can't, I think there was a bit of angst at times. He might have got dropped. I think uh, Nancy dropped him. And, yeah, I can't really remember the circumstances. But, yeah, I knew Warwick. He wasn't too keen on Peter Knights, was he? It's marvellous with played by that. Like, he's a, he's a nice enough guy, Warwick. But I think because he was the marketing, per, and he was quite a good player, really. He, he kicked 100 goals and... Um, but he had some shortcomings in his game. And I think he'd never, and SCG suited him, smaller ground, more chance of marking, all that sort of thing. Big ground at Carrara. He, once he started to struggle, which wasn't entirely his fault, but he couldn't adapt to the to the different, you know, it was a different side to what he was in Sydney, a different ground. He was playing Peter, and then they were trying to modify and improve his game, and then he was struggling. So... Instead of working with it, I think, and I've known some other players, like they blame other people. And I think it was a different service. I don't, it certainly wasn't Peter's fault. And 
but it was a matter of, well, you've got to take stock yourself and try and improve yourself and where do I need to go? And I've got to adapt, I've got to be flexible, um, got to learn new skills. And I think he might have got dropped at one stage, I think. And I think he, like a lot of supposed good players, do they blame it? It's other someone else's fault, it's not mine. So I think that was more the reason. It was more that he his football, he, he, he was blaming Peter. And is he a full-on character that you kind of see on TV and I guess uh, on radio or is that uh, Warwick Kappa 24-7 or is it a bit of a persona? That image of persona has increased over the years. Like he's a likeable, he's a likeable, he's a likeable guy. But I think my take on it is early days, he was, this is how best to market you. So he learnt phrases that he repeated and it was his consistent. So ended up being him, but started as a persona, but I think it's him. Yeah, and he is like that a fair bit, yeah. So we, we get the taste for coaching in the Brisbane Bears uh, with the reserves, as you said, and then you find yourself in North Melbourne, reserves and assistant coach uh, under Dennis Pagan. Is it true that you both went for the top job at North Melbourne and uh, Dennis Pagan just beat you? Um, yeah, I was coached, assistant coach the year before with Wayne Schimmelbush. And um, then Wayne, we played a... One of the night series, I don't know what the night series was called then, Anset Cup or something, in Adelaide and got locked. We lost in March or late February, March, lost by 150 points. So there was a board meeting and Wayne got moved on, which I was only my first year, so naive and went behind the ears, didn't know much about politics and, oh, wow, okay. And then Dennis had been uh, under 19 coach there for a long time, but it was coaching Essendon Reserves or... Uh, for one year and that and he'd be prepared for coaching and have a 60-page report done what I hadn't even thought about senior coaching so someone asked me and said listen will you will you do the interview I said yeah I will so it was myself and Dennis and uh may have been Grant Thomas as well I think so I went for the interview knowing really that I was not prepared and not really ready for it anyway so it worked out okay Dennis got a job, which was the right person. And I was probably fortunate with Dennis getting it in the February because I, I think it was in the November, I probably wouldn't have been there. I think Dennis would have brought his own people in and <laughs> wouldn't have survived. So I think, uh, uh, but that worked out okay. I learned a lot off Dennis. I had a good uh, had a good relationship with him and learned a lot off him. So it was, you know, it worked out well. Was one of the things that you learned off Dennis Pagan, he's uh, paganism, I think they've been uh, donned. Like things like a draw is like dancing with your sister. Any good uh, paganisms? Um, oh, yeah, Dennis, had, Dennis was quite a funny, humorous gentleman. He had a lot of uh, different sayings. Uh, I think he started that, that saying he had then was about practice matches as well. He said practice matches is like dancing with your sister. Nothing comes of them. So, yeah, the famous one about blokes trying to hoodwink him or tell him some fibs and he'd say he, he, he said don't piddle down my back and tell me it's raining was one of his one of his famous ones as well so he had plenty he had plenty he was very he was very very funny man he, he but serious but he had a good had a good sense of humor and from from all accounts he could be pretty brutal with players and i guess they didn't appreciate that at the time but he's kind of said looking back players have come back to him and actually thanked him so it's kind of funny. We, we jump forward here, and I don't know if we can sort of correlate anything here, but your time at the Gold Coast, I guess, bringing up that generational thing again, perhaps do younger footballers not have a, a thicker skin? 
or do they need to have a thicker skin? Because I think the likes of Corey McKernan and there's, I mean, there's lots of players that got sprays or, you know, were a hard line with Dennis Pagan, but they've actually come back and thanked him for it. Yeah. Oh, the Gold Coast, I'd change. I'd hardly go on the spray at all. So there was very rarely, uh, yeah, they're a different breed uh, and it's changing all the time. Um, it's, it's, it's really about the outcomes. It's about how you're going to get the outcome and, if a spray is warranted, not so much warranted, but you're going to get an effect where you do that. But it's more about, I think, yeah, it has changed and you've got to change because it's about getting them to perform well. My concern is, you don't have to give them a spray, is being honest with your feedback. And it can be direct and say, well, this is, and a lot of, quite a few players don't want that. They only want positives. Mm. And my concern with that is they won't improve because they're making the same mistake. If they only want positives, and then do they get inconsistent um, with it because they don't know the truth? Now, probably in my day and Dennis' day, we're probably a bit bit harder with our feedback or other other coaches as well. I mean, they have been like that. But I think you've, you've got to be honest with guys. You've got to be honest. And not so much as an – it's not a negative. It's about – I think the role of coaches is to get the best out of them individual and make them better. So you've got to improve. So if you're going to improve, you've got to have some things wrong with you. And there's no player in the competition, I don't care who they are, Dustin Martin or Patrick Dangerfield or whoever, who haven't got parts of the game, they've got to improve. Mm. So the young players are 18 to think that they don't need to improve. Well, they're not going to last long in the competition. So a few years there at North Melbourne under Dennis Pagan, you find your first senior coaching role at the the Sydney Swans. How did that come about? It's a good question. I, I got asked to about the Fitzroy job before that. Then I got a phone call about Brisbane. Wolsey had left. Um, it had a bit of a, I think a bit of a blue some hierarchy there. Um, and he, he, his own volition moved on and. I knew some people at Brisbane haven't been there. And then I got a call from Sydney. So I had three, three clubs that uh, had spoken to me or were going to talk to me. Fitzroy had said I could have the job if I wanted. And I wasn't being egotistical. I really wasn't. It was about, well, you knew Fitzroy didn't have the money. Are they going to survive? Which in 12 months' time they didn't. Or you know, two years they didn't. So that was justified in my mind. And I thought I had more of a chance to get Brisbane because of um, relationships that there. But there was one person who didn't want me in the job and so he went looking for other people and ended up getting John North came available. But at the same time, I was talking to Sydney. I met Kelvin Templeton, Rick Quaid and Greg Harris, who was chairman of selectors in Melbourne and time, just for a chat, and they flew me to Melbourne to make a presentation. They were very professional the way they went about it. At the start, I didn't think really much about Sydney as in chance to get the job but they were very professional and it was eye-opening and I was very impressed and they offered me the job so I gladly took it I was and and pleased I did pleased I did Darren Creswell said uh, especially in the early 90s that uh, the facilities they had and the resources was not that great uh, I guess by the time you get there in 96 we've come off the back of I think two or three years with Ron Barassi who really sort of I guess tried to change a few things at the Swans um, there was things said about the Gold Coast facilities sort of not being up to par did you notice any similarities or by that time Sydney was well and truly on its way Sydney's weren't too bad they did revamp 
uh, 12 months before I, I moved on to get really good facilities. They were okay uh, without being great. Now, in the, you know, a bit of a rabbit warren down in the bottom of the stand. So they, they were okay. That was a lot better than what when, I think when Creza first went there, they, they did a refurb and improved them. Uh, the Gold Coast was really poor, uh, to be honest. They had a gymnasium in a, a big tin shed. Um, so you train for two hours or three hours out. It was pre-season. It was humid, not in lunch, and then they have to do weights in this hot. It was just fans, really. There was no air conditioning. You had to leave the doors open. Like it was just like an oven. So it was it was pretty, and it was portables, a bit like back to the old Bears days. So it was pretty archaic, really. So they did a great job at the end. Um, the facilities, you know, state of the art. You know, they've done a, a really good job getting their facilities up and swimming pool and everything indoor and good offices and a whole range of different things. So they've got a great facility there at the moment. You take uh, on the job after Ron Barassi, I guess, sort of, was there any uh, thinking of uh, big shoes to fill here or how did you uh, take that on? Yeah, that was a, it was a bit like that too, in many ways. I think um, I think Ron had had, uh, had done a terrific job as far as uh, when he went to the Swans, I hadn't won many games, but he gave it a lot of credibility, credibility in the town, a bit of discipline and a bit of direction. I think footy was evolving pretty quickly at that stage. So I think Ron, football-wise, was probably probably uh, not up to the speed of where it was at, but I think he gave it a real credibility. Um, fortunately for me, he stayed on as on the board, and Ron was great support. He's such a, a charismatic character, but he's as honest as the day's long and he, he he wants to do the right thing for every organisation he's in and that's why he's held in such high esteem apart from his success rate but just him as a person and, and he was terrific uh, support for me so that eased that pressure a bit he was uh, you know he was always there to have a chat have a word and I think it was I think uh, I think the Swans were very lucky to have him that he, you know, he stayed on. There's sort of the big sort of mentor sort of coach and then a senior coach will eventually take over. I mean, someone like a Ron Barassi, even if it was just to, you know, for that motivational talker, and then you had like a Rodney Ead such as yourself as a tactical guy uh, in the background. Um, I guess sort of not to get too far off topic, but is the AFL, uh, is all oh, clubs, are they kind of a little bit sort of timid to go with an older coach and then I guess sort of be working on someone in the background to eventually take over? Yeah, they probably are. I mean, do you go the soccer style and have that manager, the Alex Ferguson, who mm. model or the way they are at the moment as a manager, and then you've got a coach who takes training and um, comes with ideas and tactics and a whole range of different things. So is there a shared model, is what you said? Do you, yeah, is the the older one seems to become Chris Fagan's done a good job. I think AFL footy more than anywhere else in the world, certainly more than anywhere else in the world, seems to have an expiration date by the birth certificate. So you mm. reach a certain age. That's it. You go to the younger ones, but it's the only job in the world. You get a job at 34, 36, and you've never had any experience. Like, if you get CEO of an organisation, you've had some experience of doing some high management level uh, work. And I think, therefore, you're making mistakes on the job. You've got no experience. You're making, you're learning on the job. You're learning. Where the model, the Brett Ratton, and I reckon either Michael Boss, will, you end up being a better coach as you go along. Uh, the more you've coached, it makes sense. So getting new, younger coaches is not, you know, maybe the way. I don't think they 
one model should not be the same for everyone. No, we've got David Noble now at North Melbourne, but has that just followed the Chris Fagan model? Mm. Doesn't mean it's going to work. It might work, but I think each club, and it probably happens in other sports as well, we end up being sheep. We follow, oh, oh that's worked, so we should follow them. Well, you've got to make your own decision because each circumstance is different. And I don't think there's a right model, but let's not just do everything the same as everyone else. But be mindful of a young coach because there's a lot of pressure, as we'll see now with Reshaw and other coaches we met before, Danny Frawley, and that just the pressures of coaching mm-hmm. um, is enormous and it's getting more. It's, it's increasing because of social media and the access now through general media. Uh, is, And I think the younger ones coming through, coming back to that resilience, they've grown up with that positivity and they're going to be positive themselves, but they're under more pressure and more negativity than they've been as a player because you're going to cop it from everywhere. You've cop it from the media, you've cop it from members, you'll get letters, you'll get emails, you'll get abuse from a whole range of your family suffers. So you've got to be fairly resilient character to be able to put that in its box where it belongs and be able to do your job. Could only imagine uh, if there was social media back in '96, uh, your first year with the Swans, and not half bad. You get the team to, we get Sydney to their fair, first ever grand final, and it was a kind of a bit of bit like Apprentice v Mentor taking on Dennis Pagan's North Melbourne. Uh, I guess as a player, as we said, you've won four. Losing that '96 grand final, did you kind of think to yourself, "We'll get the next one"? Because I know speaking with Creswell, he kind of was a young player and thought. Oh, no, I'll play in another one or win one and never quite made it. Was it a similar thought as a coach? No, I knew how how hard him though had won four, how hard they are. Mika Locken said to me, he said, I just thought, you know, we'd be back there again. 98 was our best chance. 97, we, we struggled a bit with injuries and had a few other issues that uh, went along. Um, but I thought we had a, a good enough side to compete again. But it just shows you, and as a player, you just don't realise that other teams are going to improve mm. like we did in 96. Other teams are, they're not sitting back. And because we've finished where we finished or where teams are finished, it doesn't give you a, a, a right of passage or a gold ticket to be there again next year. Um, how many teams do we see each year who finish top four and don't make the eight the next year? Mm. It, it happens. You, you've got to keep improving. And that's what you're trying to get across as a coach to players. You've got to look for ways to get better. And that's why I admired about Tony Lockett, the great player that he was. But he was he was losing some of his elite skills. His body was – but he was learning different ways and adapting to be able to still survive at a high level. And I think in play, you've just got to do that. You've just got to keep – because if you finish second or third or you finish outside the eighth, you're going to do everything possible to get better. You're going to be driven by the coach. When you get to a certain stage, if you win it or you, you whenever you get comfortable, it's a down, you're on the way down. You're on the way down. And that's what you're trying to get through the players all the time. A mark taken by Chapman. He can kick it forward. There's 22 seconds left. The kick towards it. Lock's going to be there. Lock's got it. 50 metres from goal. If he kicks a point, the Swans are into the grand final. <laughs> the time is ticking down. Lockett can go and all he has to do is kick a score. It'll be after the siren, the kick. They're all heading down there. Will you back to kick the distance, Jerry? Absolutely. Well, the siren is going. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. The scene is set. You couldn't get it any better than this. I don't think anybody's heard the siren. 
No one has moved in the crowd. What a finish. Any score. Otherwise, we play extra time. Lockett, the most important kick in his career. Any score will do. He kicks. Ninety-six. I guess it's more remembered for the prelim, the a week before the actual AFL Grand Final, with the point that uh, plugger Tony Lockett kicks after the siren against the Bombers. What's your memory of that night? Um, I've actually watched. It's been on Fox a couple of times. I haven't got a copy of it, but I've watched. Uh, it's been on every now and then when I'm channel surfed and seen what's the last quarter and it brings back some memories. It brings back. And it was a tough game. I do, what I remember it was a tough game, low scoring game. Because, and it wasn't a defence game, even though we we had some flooding in those in that time. But it was more back and forth, and it was such a a physical game. I know that Essendon had beaten us; they had about four players who couldn't play the next week, and we had some sore bodies. But it, it was just a tough game. It was back and forth, high intensity, high octane game. The parts I remember most were you no, know, we got down by a couple of goals and looked like we were shot because it was tough to score. And then Adam Euskis did a fantastic uh, tackle and smother and then won the ball in the in the back pocket and changed direction, which was part of our game plan. And then Maxfield kicked it to Lewis and then Kreza hit Plugger and it was, on oh, no, that Plugger hit Kreza, sorry. And it was like, they're the, the things I remember. It was more about things we were talking about before, about the resilience and the, the guys just stuck at it. They just kept on plugging away and they threw their bodies in and, you know, Wade Chapman who kicked the ball, unfortunately his body gave up on him a couple of years later, but just the courage that they showed, it was just really, really impressive. And that's the thing that stuck, stood out for me at the time. I thought, you know, this group are really, really tough group. And uh, obviously Tony's kick was a, was a great kick. I thought it was a goal at the time. Everyone jumped on me in the box and I thought I was kicked a goal. I didn't realise it was a point until we went downstairs. <laughs> but uh, I think that was the night that there was acceptance of the Swans in Sydney. That was, and a lot of people said that who'd been in Sydney for a while, that apparently the pubs, you hear the stories, the pubs around town were chock-a-block and they're all watching the game and erupted when we won. And it, you know, cause it was a battle, it was a real strong, because not only rugby league, it was rugby union, had been there a long, long time and that was the sports in the in the city. But that was the thing that, we. Well, I think the Swans always said, we want to coexist, we don't want, not taking over legal thing now we're, now we're now we want to be a sydney side and i think that was the night that there was acceptance in sydney as as the swans as a as part of the sydney culture pluggers 2002 return was that something that on paper seemed like a good idea but not necessarily in reality because i know whether this was created by the media the notion that uh, you were kind of unwillingly sort of saddled with tony lockett i guess having 2020 vision how do you reflect on that now no, no, I wasn't saddled with it. It was certainly driven by hierarchy and I think from marketing, but I think they'd spoken to Tony. So I spoke to Tony about it and it's like anywhere I wanted to go through, I just didn't want to accept it. I wanted to go through the what ifs and him get mentally if things didn't work out. Mm. What are you going to do if you don't kick a goal? What if you don't? What, what are you going to think and what's going to happen if you can't get a kick? What happens if you're going to struggle? 
and he hadn't thought about it. You can tell. I can tell by his reaction. He didn't say anything, but I can tell. Uh, so I said, it's just not a matter of doing that. I said, I'm happy to have you back, but let's let's talk through this and where we need to get to, what we need to do to think about it. Because I think, because that time Barry had been recruited. And so, so it was a hard conversation. It was a tough conversation, but it needed to be had with Tony. It wasn't just accepting him then. In my mind, if three games in and Tony hadn't touched the ball, what did we do? We drop, you know, we drop a, a superstar. We drop a legend of the game. Mm. How does his ego how does he cope with that? And I went went through those scenarios with him. Oh, what what happens with that? Uh, and I said, if it got to the stage, I'm going to do what's best for the team. I'll, I'll support you as much as I can. But mm. this is the reality of it. You come back, you deep voice. No, I'll, I'll be right. I think I'll be able to contribute. I said, well, I knew that he's aim for every game was to kick six goals. I said, I'm not expecting that from you. So you've got to get your expectations down. If you can kick a couple and, some, and what happens if you're not going to do that? What if you can't kick four goals going? Are you going to be okay? Are you going to get frustrated and stressed? And he hadn't thought about that. He just thought he'd come back and kick six. He was really unfortunate because he got a knee in the first game we played Brisbane. We're in front at half time and we're playing well. And someone jumped up and need him in the thigh and he was a bit of a bleeder and it bled really burst a blood vessel and it bled really heavily and then it calcified and he mm. missed four weeks and i think that continuity when he came back he wasn't he'd lost some weight and he he just wasn't the player he was and he looked okay in the preseason, and he was looking okay that game and i, I felt for him because i think and we and we said what had happened but People over time tend to forget that. So I think it could have been a, a success in what I call success. It's not going to be Tony Lockett's success at kicking 100 goals, but I think he could have added to the team. He could have, uh, he would have taken a good player to play on him. He would have kicked 40 to 50 goals, I reckon. So, which is by today's standards, fantastic. So, uh, but unfortunately, he never got a run at that uh, because of his leg. And then uh, we, when I, was moved on mid-season that year. We were f- won four games, I think, or three and a half or something out of ten. But we'd lost, out of the seven games, we'd lost six games. we lost four of them were under eight points. Mm. Like, we are right in it. So it could have you know, gone the other way. We could have been really in a positive ledger. So Tony read that and said, we're not going to play finals. So. so it was unfortunate for him. I think it could have worked, but unfortunately he wasn't given a... a a reasonable run at it. I think you mentioned uh, that round 12 game against Geelong, um, Barry Hall, Tony Lockett in the forward line. I think the ball was coming in and I think there was even a moment where Barry Hall and Tony Lockett just looked at each other expecting the other to go for it. So I guess it, it was just probably a, a bad combination of sorts as, as well. But I've heard that Tony Lockett's a superstitious man and Ben Matthews obviously refused to give him back the number four. I think he was wearing the number 46. Did that have anything to, to do with Lockett's or Plugger's superstitious uh, nature? Um, well, obviously, he'd love the number four. Ben Ben came and saw me. I spoke to Tony about it as well. And Ben said, I'd like to keep it. And I said to him, well, it, I know he's a big name, but if you're comfortable that you want it, I said, I'll support you. Um, so I spoke to Tony about it, and Tony took that well. He, he was fine. He said he'd take 46. So I don't think it affected him the way he's played. But he, he was a superstitious guy. I don't know whether Jumper was a superstition, but you now he had his same old Adidas bag that he had since he was 16 years of age and had holes in it. And 
peeled off. So, yeah, he was a, he was a superstitious. But there's a lot of guys that were superstitious. Um, I was superstitious when I played. Like, yeah, I think everyone's got a bit of a superstition at some stage. So, 2002. I mean, on the on the outside looking in, it seemed like a bit of a turbulent year. I guess with Lockett coming and going, a few retirements from some senior players. You stepped down halfway through the year. But I mean, up until that point, the Swans had only missed playing the finals, I think, in the year 2000, I think it was. It was only one year of your time coaching. In retrospect, do you think it was a bit stiff, uh, you sort of getting moved on? Um, oh, you realise it's a tough, it's a tough, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a tough industry. I think in hindsight, probably things could be done better as communication and things. And I think they realise that it's just the way it happens. Um, there wasn't a lot of feedback. And as you said, with Tony, I, I, took, I was happy to take Tony on board, but that was a club decision as well. So you, you're with that. And he, whether I was or whether I wasn't, I don't know. It's uh, I got hung up on it. You, you move on. You do what's best for the, for the club and, and then you go. So that's all right. Any rememberable uh, sprays uh, while you're at Sydney? Um, while speaking to Darren Creswell, he's, he seems to remember a good one that you said to Matty Nix that uh, you'll give him three clearances just in case he loses two. Was there any sort of quick, uh, funny ones that come to mind uh, while at Sydney? No, no, there's not. There's a couple of the Bulldogs, but I get reminded by players when I run into them and I can't remember them. So they, they must stick in their mind as they're in the humour humor with it. Um, because some of them are, are, you raise your voice, but there's a bit of uh, humour attached with it and you see some blokes giggling and um, some smart, uh, some comments. But, no, I can't really remember uh, too much. Uh, I, I can't remember that one of, uh, of Nixie, um, I must admit. I spoke to Matthew when he got the job at Adelaide and spoke to him this year to keep his chin up when they go him in a bad run. But, no, not, not really. I can't, I can't remember too much. Well, what about, how, how many phones did you go through in the Swans coach's box? Only one. Only one? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it gets a life of its own, unfortunately. Some people want to want to go with it. But um, anyway, you, you know, you live with it. Then you're appointed the senior coach of the Western Bulldogs in 2005. I guess out of the three AFL clubs that you did coach, would you say the Bulldogs was the most talented crop that you had? Um. It's a good question. We never really had a key forward, so I think we developed. I would say we developed. We were a pretty young squad. They, when I went there, there was Chris Grant, Luke Darcy, Brad Johnson, Rowan Smith, and Scott West. Then from then down were young players. Robert Murphy played 60 games, and they were all younger than that. Luke, Chris Grant was towards the end. He was terrific. Chris, he was fantastic to coach and be involved. But uh, so he's only five years, 2005, six and seven. Luke Darcy did his knee twice and hardly played. Uh, Brad Johnson was sensational. Scott West was sensational. And Rowan Smith only played uh, the two years, five and six. So really only Johnson and West that there had a meaningful contribution over the period of time. But they were terrific leaders as... as uh, as was Darcy and Smith, they were, they were fantastic. Granted, they were, they were great. Very mentioned before about you going, you don't realize like Criswell and Kelly about their professionals. Most life guys were absolutely super professional the way they went about it. I was super, super impressed. But the rest were, were young, and so I think that when we when I got there, we 
finished last or second last the last two years. So I hadn't played finals for four years. So I don't know about being super talented. I think we were able to, as a coaching group and a recruiting group, be able to uh, identify players. Like, like Dale Morris became a super player, but he couldn't get a game for Do the Stars. Um, it's a local team and didn't play under 18 football. We mm. just got him out of Werribee and he played that year. So we're able to... Uh, Cross and Boyd were playing seconds footy. Lindsay Gilby was playing seconds footy in and out. Uh, Brian Lake had only been there a couple of two or three years. So we're able to develop, I reckon, a really good bunch of um, core, strong core of players. Ryan Hargrave, uh, Mitch Hahn, um, these players were all of the similar age. Murphy Jean Syracuse, obviously good players. They're all very young and all, all developed into really good players. So... Uh, I was fortunate, I think, Scotty Clayton had done a great job in assembling them as youngsters and I was probably fortunate to get them at the right time when they were 20, 21 years of age. So, uh, but it was a very fun time. I really enjoyed my time at the Bulldogs. A terrific club and terrific people. It was, um, you know, it was a really good time. Seeing them win the 2016 Grand Final, funny enough, against the Swans, um, well, which, which would you kind of take more pride in? I don't know if pride's necessarily the correct word, but seeing the Swans win the Premiership in either 05 or 2012 and the Dogs in 2016, do you kind of, being a part of that, I guess, initial build, was there any pride or happiness in seeing that, if that makes sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, certainly, on both both occasions, because I really enjoyed the time at Sydney and the South Melbourne supporters hadn't seen flag for so long, and players are your coach, so you're really, really super pleased for them um, on both, in both clubs. Um, so... Yeah, both both clubs for a long period of time had one flags. Um, I think the Bulldogs has been the the poor old Bulldogs, and that's what I noticed when I went there. Their their supporters were like that. Oh well, yeah, you accept close enough is good enough because that's that's us, and the players mm-hmm. were a bit like that. So you have a real attachment to to them as a as a club and and as a supporter base. Um, so I know I was thrilled that they were able to win, able to win, and give them cement that belief that they had that they're just not there for the uh, as far as making up the numbers and that's what I found when I first went there they felt I felt that they were just not happy is not the right phrase but felt they're just part of the part of the competition mm-hmm. and um, and few of the players came to me and said oh, you know if you can just teach us to win because uh, I yeah. believe about as having a voice and a say and and trying to get that in my first year and I remember as Gia came up and said oh, I can just he, he said they said that's great you know it's great you can do that, but we just want to you, – you just tell us how we can win. Just show us how we can win games. And by the end of the first year, that that, that confidence was there. There was uh, there was no confidence at the start of the year, and we missed the finals by half a game. So that year, 2005, was as, uh, as a pleasing year, um, fulfilling years I've, I've had in coaching. It was good. Mate. You're a bit of a historian when it comes to history and, I guess, AFL history. Hear me out here. So 1996, the Swans make a grand final. They lose. Fast forward, 2005, they win. They also make it again in 2006. They lose. 2016, the Swans make the grand final against the Bulldogs. They lose. So I have a feeling that uh, any year that finishes in six, if the Swans are in a grand final, they're not going to win it. They're not going to win it? Yeah. So 2026, don't, yeah. they won't win? <laughs> well, they're potentially they're going to be in there, but they won't win it. Yeah, oh, well, it's, um, I, I, 
that's more playing with numbers. I'm a bit like that. I was a bit, when I was at Hawthorne, 61, 71. I thought, oh, 81, but it but never turned up. So uh, 76, 86, 06, yeah. Yeah, I, you, you can draw any pattern you like, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately it, does, it doesn't work out that way. So anyway, hopefully they hopefully they can. They, now, they've seen they've got their, uh, they're on the right path. I think they've got some good kids and... Um, I think I think John's done a good job with that. You've been very generous with your time. Before we do wrap up, you were affiliated with the Collingwood Magpies for a few years there as the football uh, and coaching strategist. Uh, we just found out that Eddie Maguire is going to wrap up as club president after the 2021 20, uh, season. Uh, what's your thoughts about that? Uh, he's been a great president for the club. Did he maybe stay there a little bit too long? Or I guess just your initial thoughts on uh, that, that development. Yeah, it's hard for me to judge about whether people are there too long it's easy to say it's like people's birth certificates coaching was too old but certain things so I, I think you've got to judge it in isolation and only the people internally will know that uh, look ed's been fantastic for the common football club as a 34 year old going there and turn the finances around and making them uh, juggernaut what they are in australian sport let alone afl sport like he's he's had some hurdles to, to overcome and had some gaps along the way and had the blues with Sydney a fair bit. Um, but he, um, like, he's been great for football and it's great for the Collingwood Football Club. Whether he's been there too long, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I think he'd make a case either way. I think it's easy for his detractors to say that. I think what this salary cap and dumping of players has brought everything to a head. So his detractors have, been, have given them a vehicle to... Mm. Yeah, they they probably obviously needed to handle that a bit better somehow. Um, but I don't think he's totally to blame for that. The board have got to obviously run their hand over everything as, as a club and who they appoint. But listen, to me, he looks still, look, he's got passion. He's still got vitality. He's still got energy. I think whoever takes over at Collingwood as a president, it'd be silly not to have Ed close by and some assistance and his experience and his expertise. So so I'm sitting on the fence there. I, I'm not too sure whether it's, he's been there long enough. He's been there too long, but I think he's still got a lot to offer. Absolutely. Uh, Rodney, Rocket Ed, you've been very great with your time. Uh, you're a great player for the Hawks and the Brisbane Bears. A great coach. I really thank you for taking the time. Uh, all the best for 2021. Have a safe and happy Christmas and uh, hopefully uh, no more clusters uh, of uh, COVID in Victoria. Thanks, Joel. Have a good Christmas yourself, mate, and all the best to the Swans. And that wraps up another edition of Bloods Evolved. And make sure to hit us up on all the socials at Bloods Evolved. Give us that five-star review on iTunes, and I will start reading some of those reviews out on the next show. Also on the likes of Spotify, Google Podcast. And tell you what... Cannot wait to bring this to you. The next episode of Bloods of Old is going to be with none other, the 2005 Premiership coach, former player for the Swans, and Fitzroy, of course. Can't forget his Fitzroy days. Here it is, Paul Ruse. And here's a little bit of a taste of what's to come on that episode. But until next time, up the mighty Swans. It's a great point. So if, you, if you're following, whatever team you're following, and you want to know who the coach's favourite players are. Watch the last five minutes of round 22 leading into the next week of finals and you'll always, you'll determine, so Richmond would be Dusty Martin, Jack Rewald, 
Cochin and I guess Rance when Rance was playing sort of thing. So it gives you a great indication of who the coach thinks is probably the, the, the most indispensable players, you know, the ones that you know that if you get injured, you just can't replace them. You know, you haven't got another centre forward, you haven't got another centre back or, or whatever. So not necessarily your best players, but the ones that you go, we can't afford to lose this guy if we, we, we want to go further. 